This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I am John saying It has been a crazy Tuesday. A judge has just set Donald Trump's trial for March of 2024. Smack dab in the middle of primary season. And he's told Donald Trump what he can't say about the criminal case against him. Uh, the poem that was read by 22-year-old poet Amanda Gorman at Joe Biden's inauguration has been banned from elementary schools in Miami-Dade County. Because one parent didn't like it. The Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, has given out a warning to parents urging caution and allowing children to use any social media, saying that anything, even as young as at 13, is extremely damaging to their mental health and development. What if you can't afford a babysitter? And of course, it's been, what, two weeks since the end of Title 42? The huge influx of migrants that was supposed to send the border into chaos just hasn't happened. Instead, did you know this? I bet you didn't because you watch American news. There was a 50% drop in border crossings in the immediate first few days after the end of the public health mandate that gave the legal cover for Title 42. And Ron DeSantis is going to announce, finally, his doomed campaign for president tomorrow. And he's going to do it on Twitter with Elon Musk, because that's where the people Ron DeSantis is trying to go for are hanging out right now. Thank you, Elon Musk. It's good to know that you're going to be so middle of the road uh, and that you're going to keep Twitter from having any bias. Look, it, it's it's crazy. And we're still dealing with the debt ceiling every day. The same people who said we can't forgive the interest payments on student loans because you got to pay your debts are the ones who are pushing us towards a debt default just to get clips of themselves bragging about it on Fox. It's a madhouse out there, folks, and that's why we're so glad to be with you. For the next three hours, we're going to be coming at you with facts and empathy and music and something appropriating comedy with some great guests. Dr. Tracy Pearson will be here later on tonight to talk about all the political headlines. Mark Fullman of Mother Jones is going to be here. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the Uvalde Massacre. Mark has an amazing piece in Mother Jones. The Uvalde Massacre could have been prevented. The disastrous police response demands further scrutiny, and so does another side of the horrific tragedy. And very shortly, we're going to be joined. I'm so excited we got Adrian Shropshire back. We're doing really well at getting the smart people here. She's executive director of Black Pack and the affiliated Black Progressive Action Coalition. She's a great, great activist, and she's here to talk all about the 2024 Republican field from Tim Scott's official campaign 
to Ron DeSantis and how much they're all lining up to support a Marine who choked to death a homeless black man on a New York City subway. So lots of fun. And we're so glad you guys are with us. Chris Hauselt is our executive producer. He is running this thing from down south in South Carolina. The great Thea Harper is running this thing from Brooklyn. I come to you from Manhattan. We're so glad you're with us. This is kind of crazy before we even get into tonight's rant. But uh, I, I got to know what you guys think. I know it's all celebrity, right? I know that at this point, government is nothing but this celebrity versus that celebrity. And maybe that's better than this enlightened billionaire versus that enlightened billionaire. But you may have heard about this. People are terrified about Dianne Feinstein. She's almost 90. She's having some problems. They're thinking about who Gavin Newsom could appoint to take her seat if she were to resign. And a lot of people are worried if he makes it somewhat someone like Barbara Lee, uh, who then might make it harder, say, for an Adam Schiff to run for the Senate seat next year. So now, again, this is just idle talk, but the AP has picked it up. Oprah Winfrey. People are floating the name of Oprah Winfrey. People, people are, does Oprah even legally live in California, folks? I mean, come on. Newsom promised to appoint a black woman to Feinstein's seat should it open up. Feinstein is the current oldest member of Congress, and she just came back to the Senate last week after a case of the shingles kept her away for like 10 weeks. And of course, since she's come back, her appearance... And her interactions with the press have caused a lot of concerns. A lot of Democrats are calling for her resignation. And I've said all along, it's ageist, it's ableist, it's sexist. I, I, I don't want to pile on her. I'm not a fan of Senator Feinstein, but she has every right to stay there if she feels she can do it. And she has said she will not be stepping down. But Oprah, is this crazy bad ideas or is this crazy good? I mean, Oprah on a ballot in 2024, even if it's just for the state of California, that would make me want to vote in whatever state I lived in. And I know, I know, celebrity, but but it, this this would just be for like two years, just sitting in the spot for two years. I, I, I don't know, guys. The Republicans are really good at having novelty candidates. We had the game show host. We had the son of a former president. Democrats are actually running public servants. But what if what if you just appointed Oprah in there? For a couple of weeks, everything in me says it's bad. I should resist this. But the way politics are right now, I'm sorry. I think she would help with turnout in all 50 states. We got a heck of a good show scheduled for tonight. Let's do it. So you might have heard about what's going on with uh, L.A. Pride and the Dodgers. It's kind of a mess. It's a big mess, you guys, and there's a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of silliness and lots of men in dresses. Uh, the L.A. LGBT Center, which is great, uh, wonderful place, by the way, and L.A. Pride have pulled out of the Dodgers Pride Night scheduled for June 16th because the team formally disinvited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, uh, who some Catholic groups, we'll get to this, said were mocking their religion. Now, the Sisters were supposed to attend Dodgers Pride Night and also receive an award for their work. Now, maybe you're thinking, who are these Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? Well, they're a nonprofit, and they raise money and volunteers for the LGBTQ community. And they're guys who dress in drag. And sometimes they dress as nuns. And the group says they are not anti-religious. Their mission is to spread joy. Their mission is to end hate. They do not crusade against the Catholic Church or against nuns or against God or Jesus in any way. They put on nun costumes and they goof off like comedians do in movies. 
So the mayor of Anaheim has invited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to Angels Pride Night after the Dodgers disinvited them, which has caused even more controversy. So the Dodgers feel bad now. And they just apologized. I'm, I'm not making this up. The L.A. Dodgers just apologized to a bunch of drag queens who dress as nuns because they disinvited them from Pride Night because some conservative groups and Republican politicians, including Marco Rubio, protested. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have now accepted a new invitation to the event and they'll still get their community service award. And they, they're invited to go to Anaheim, too. So you go, girls. Well, it didn't take long for our friends on the right to completely sink into mind-numbing victimhood. And it's not often I get to quote the Washington Examiner on this show, but a lot of people sent me this article this morning, and I, I, I gotta say I was delighted by it. it. It's hard. I'm not a morning person. I'm really not a morning person. I'm, I'm, I work till what the hell o'clock, as y'all know, and, and I have to wind down after this, and by the time I fall asleep, decent people have been asleep for hours. When I get up, like... I need to have a coffee to be awake enough to go meet someone for coffee. I'm not a morning person. But a bunch of people sent me this op-ed this morning, and I, I got to be honest, it kind of delighted me. It's by Tim Carney, who is a very conservative Catholic and writes for the Washington Examiner. You know what the Washington Examiner is, right? If the Washington Post is the great newspaper, it's the Oreo cookie, and Washington Examiner is like the Hydrox knockoff. He tweets out, the Los Angeles Dodgers have their religion. It's one whose central aim is the destruction of mine. One of the hallmarks of being a Christian nationalist, or you know what, shucks, just being a revoltingly fake Christian, is um, this perpetual victimhood and this notion that if anyone else gets something, that means I've lost something. Remember when they were trying to campaign against marriage equality, and they kept saying, oh, this will jeopardize traditional marriage. I, I loved that argument. We heard that for years. Oh, traditional marriage will be jeopardized. What does that mean? The breakdown of the family system. Wait, so what? My kid robs a Stuckey's? I can blame a gay guy? It was rubbish, but they did it. Because obviously, if gay people get equality, straight people are losing something, right? So imagine my delight to sit down and read a piece called The Jealous Gods of the Rainbow Church Tolerate No Infidels. And honestly, folks, I I grew up around people like this. I have people like this in my family. Love them. Understand them. I get it. Mr. Carney writes, The Los Angeles Dodgers have their religion. It's one whose central aim is the destruction of mine. What? The L.A. Dodgers want to destroy your religion, sir? I'll skip around, but Mr. Carney says the symbols of the 21st century gay and transgender movement aren't simply used to say we should love and tolerate everyone. Some of the folks deploying these symbols are basically a competing religion that is dedicated to destroying the religions held by billions of other people. No, uh, they're not. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are a fundraising group that raises money for LGBTQ issues. They are not a religion. If you think they are, you don't know what religion means. Why do I mention, he says, this depraved group of men whose organizing principle is to mock a major religion in a sexualized and misogynistic way? That's, by the way, if you get, if you, if you get the memos in right-wing world, now they attack drag queens by saying they hate women. They're transgender. You know, my God, if you hated women, you wouldn't dress as them. If you hated Elvis, you wouldn't dress as him. I, I, I do not think that all or even most groups marching under the pride flag bear such hatred towards my religion. But this anti-Catholic group is very notable because when the L.A. Dodgers have pride night, they are honoring the drag nuns of L.A. to knock down barriers and foster an atmosphere of acceptance for all. Now you see why the anodyne statements of acceptance and tolerance strike so many of us. 
as deceptive cover stories. My God. When the L.A. Dodgers talk about acceptance and fly the pride flag, they are not being pluralistic, but are flying their own religious symbol. That's it. So now the pride symbol, which is just, hey, let's not hate ourselves the way we've been raised to hundreds of years. That's a religion, and it's a religion that hates yours because you fucking decided that. Allowing transgender people to be who they are, Mr. Carney, is not a religion. That's not a religion. That's what a secular society does to be less dickish. Please keep your grasp of Christianity out of our laws. But again, this is the mentality. They, 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 they have to go after the marginalized, right? Think about it. Someone was nice to a marginalized group. Well, we need to play victim right away. Crap all over the least of us. Doesn't that feel better than treating the least of us the way Jesus commands you to? See, here's where I got to remind you that Jesus never condemns gay people. No, not once. No, never once. Well, what about what about male and female? He made them. No, no, that's Jesus coming out against straight divorce, not not gay marriage, straight divorce. And he came out against straight divorce to protect women because women could be kicked to the curb. And it was a death sentence back in the day. I'm sure today Jesus would not be that way, but let's not make it about that. Jesus never condemns gay people, not once. In fact, I'll go you better. In Matthew 19, after he says male and female, he made them. He says there's three groups of men that this law doesn't apply to, the eunuchs. Eunuchs who are born that way, eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, eunuchs who become eunuchs for the glory of God. Meaning, there's three kinds of guys who aren't going to be married, and my new rules about divorce don't apply to them. Guys who aren't going to be interested in marrying women because they're born that way. Guys who aren't going to be interested in marrying women because they've been castrated. And guys who aren't going to marry women because they become celibate as religious figures. Jesus literally says gay people are born that way, at least gay men. And I'll go you one further. The famous story of the centurion in Jesus of Nazareth that's played by uh, Ernest Borgnine. The centurion seeks out Jesus and the apostles and says, hey, my slave is dying back in my house. Will you come heal him? The apostles are all like, oh, my God, this is a Roman. That's an officer. They're occupying our land. He's the worst. And Jesus is like, hey, shut up, y'all. This guy asked me. Jesus says to the centurion, go right away. Go home. Now, the, the apostles are mad because it's a Roman centurion. But think about the story. Why would an occupying Roman military officer seek out a local homeless Jewish mystic faith healer to come into his home to heal a common slave? Well... What do we know about the Romans? We know that when they went on the road in military campaigns, they left their wives at home and they brought their boys with them. And if you read that Bible chapter, in the original Greek, the word used is not slave. It is pais, beloved boy, which explains why the apostles were so upset. Jesus essentially blessed a same-sex union. So, again, I can do this all day. I can try to argue with these people all day. Hey, trans people are not a threat to your kids. Drag queens are not a threat to your kids. This is not Christian. Jesus never once tells you to be shitty to marginalize people. Jesus commands you, if you believe your so-called religion, to be kind to them, to lift them up, to fight for them. You, you, Being a good Christian means you stand up for the little guy all the time, even when it's not popular. But of course, that's right-wing Christianity. And that's why you're not going to be hearing much about the Illinois Attorney General's office that released its report on sexual abuse in the Catholic Church in the state of Illinois today, finding 1,900 victims of abuse at the hands of 350 different clergy members over the course of 70 multi-generational years. While they're all screaming 
about the trans people that are going to be a threat to our children or the drag queens that are grooming our children to grow up and be drag queens. I, I, these fucking fake Christian idiots. I'm so sorry. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul issued the report today on the sex abuse by priests and religious brothers in the state. And it's horrifying, guys. Going back to 1950, his office found 450 priests credibly accused of sexually abuse. And of course, just like every other diocese around the world, they didn't defrock most of them. They didn't punish most of them. They moved them around to new locations where they could prey on other children. It's a 696-page report released by Illinois' Attorney General. From 1950 to 2019... A 70-year span of almost 2,000 children being sexually abused. When they began this review, five years ago, the church admitted to only 103 victims. <laughs> now we find out the church was underestimating it, four times smaller than what we know. The report calls out the church leaders for neglecting the abuse, for not addressing the accusations, not warning churchgoers. And hundreds of new names on the list came from the victims who shared their stories with investigators, and they were all vetted to make sure they were legit. Survivors spoke of years and often decades struggling with challenges, including insomnia, anxiety, trust issues, nightmares, suicidal ideation, guilt, addiction, alcoholism, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, issues creating and maintaining relationships, and sexual side effects. Now, am I saying that all priests... Are sexual abusers? Of course I'm not. Quite the opposite. The overwhelming majority are lovely people. Even the right-wing ones, whose politics I can't stand. But guys, this is what we're up against. And you have to realize something. Um, asking priests to be celibate is as unnatural and has nothing to do with Jesus as homophobia. See, <laughs> celibacy was a relatively historically recent concept for the church. Priests could marry and priests could have children for over a thousand years. But then in 1139 AD, Pope Innocent II made celibacy the law, not because sex was bad, not because Jesus was a bachelor, but because the church didn't want priests and popes and bishops leaving land and wealth to their children. It was all about greed. It was all about money. It is not natural to ask men to be celibate while wearing dresses and giving relationship advice for married couples. It is crazy. It is toxic. You get rid of this stupid, godforsaken, unbiblical, unbiblical, the first Pope St. Peter was married, unbiblical law of celibacy. And you can watch all these perversions and children being abused disappear in a generation or so. But of course, we're talking about conservatives and conservatives worship the past, no matter how much it hurts the present. Attorney General Kwame Raoul said at this news conference, the report intends to provide public accountability and a measure of healing to survivors. And he acknowledged many of the victims will never see justice in a legal sense. That's reality. Not drag queens and trans people are going to come after your children. So remember, when you're dealing with your right-wing loved ones, all you got to say to them is, when they bring this up, when they talk about the Ron DeSantis grooming, and we're talking about Ron a lot tonight, he's announcing his campaign tomorrow, we're going to cover the boy who cried woke. But when they talk about it, when they use the term grooming, just, just, just all you got to say to them is, please show me how children are more at risk around drag queens, gay people, trans people in bathrooms than they are around priests. Here endeth the rant. We want to know what you guys think. We are at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. Let's go to the phones, shall we? Teresa in North Carolina. How you doing tonight? Welcome. 
Thank you. Hi. Well, um, I I saw a fellow the other day. I seen him, and I was so hoping that you could someday get him on. He's a comedian. Now you may have heard of him, but his stick is so unusual because he's called the liberal redneck. Trey Crowder. So. Trey yeah. Crowder. Oh, he He's a friend of the show. Yeah. He's done the show many times. Oh, well, I didn't know that because I listened to him and I haven't heard him. And I thought, <laughs> oh, sure, John's heard Well, it, it, has, it has been a while. He hasn't been on since pre-pandemic. But him and the guys he tours with, I've always wanted to tour with those guys. Yeah. They're brilliant. Yeah, I love Trey. He's great. Oh, yeah. And he, um, he I, I live in Asheville, and he was in Asheville the other night at the Orange Peel. Nice. And the funny thing is, most of the crowd there were us old boomers. I mean, oh, they were, those committees were cracking up that we were Great. the majority of Great. the audience. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that happens in political shows. I got to tell you, I, I, I it's, yeah. you know, it's always fun to play for any audiences. But I know when I'm doing a political show, generally, it's not going to be young people. Yeah. You know, there are shows about sex yeah. and drinking and having a life. When you're talking about politics yeah. and doing satire, you know, it's going to attract people who, who either <laughs> are really up on the news or people like me who just are news nerds trying to win their dad's love. Oh, well, I'm so glad then you know who he is. I thought, surely you do, but I thought, oh, I've got to find out. So, All well, right, i got to book him back now. Yeah, because because you. of you, i got to book him back now. I'll get Trey back on our show right away. All right, bye. Oh, thanks, Teresa. That was lovely. <laughs> 866-997. What? She called me hun. She can do that. Dave in Philly, tell me, what do you think of celebrity candidates for Democrats? I mean, the Republicans ran someone with no history of any kind of public service whatsoever, and he sort of won even though he lost. Is this something Democrats should be should be getting behind? I think it's time to think outside the box. Tell me. I'm pretty sure. But we don't have to play with uh, nonsense, ridiculous candidates for sensationalism. We don't need to do that. I have asked this question to a whole bunch of people who's political views I admire. I said, pick anyone in the world to become the next president of the United States of America. Who might actually qualify that, you know, is on, let's just say, for the sake of conversation, our team. Okay. And what do you, what's, what's, friends, the, what's the criteria? We're picking a famous the, person. We all draw the same conclusion. The best person for the job who really understands policy, understands negotiation, understands most of the issues of the day is a guy that just wanted to be a comedian named John Stewart. Hmm. More, more so than Michelle Obama. She should be the VP. And then we get like four <laughs> for the price of one. All right. Well, listen, I'll, I'll go along with that. You think Americans are ready to uh, elect the first Jewish president? They better be. I mean, come on. Right. Be interesting. I'd love to have, I would, we've had lots of fake Christian presidents. I would love to have a non-Christian president. Right. Somebody who, you know, puts people first, you know, regardless of cultural or faith tradition. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I think it's a great idea. A lot of people have talked about Jon Stewart. Those are the three names I keep hearing. Jon Stewart, Oprah and and Michelle Obama, I guess, because Randy Quaid's with the Republicans. So we can't hope for him. So, yeah, I I think it'd be dynamite. I'd love to see any of them run. I am not above it. You know, Glenda Jackson ran for British Parliament and she was a famous actress. Sonny Bono and Ronald Reagan were both, you know, entertainers who went into politics. I, I I'm all for the Democratic Party trying to begin to catch up on that. If if we're in a celebrity generation, I don't care what their identity is. I care about how they vote. You know, I love Bernie. I love, you know, I'm fine with most of his ideas, but it's like that's not those are not, the you know, can't be the optics for where we are now. Yeah. 
yeah, he's not going to be running anyway. Well, thanks, man. Uh, let's see what happens. I don't. I can't imagine John Stewart wanting to get into politics, but I know it would certainly be very good for the Democratic Party if he ever felt like it. God knows, I'm, know. I'm ready for Al Franken to get back into politics. Uh, yeah, uh, he he was railroaded unfairly, but he was. Uh, you know, John Stewart learned uh, all you need to know about how to walk those halls uh, when he went to bat for those 911 you know, first responders. Absolutely. Nope, I know. And he's shown that he's as effective an activist as he is a satirist. So I'd love to see him do it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Do I have time for We don't have time for another call. we got to hit our break. If you're on hold, please stay there. We will get to you, and I'll thank you very much for your patience, and I want to hear from you because I know a lot of you have thoughts about the Bible and celibacy and the Catholics and the debt ceiling. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Adrian Shropshire and your calls. This is Sirius XM Progress. We'll be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. We talk a lot about Republican campaigning and when the dog whistles sound more like train whistles. You know, like when a U.S. Marine strangles and chokes to death a homeless black man on the train who never laid a finger on anyone on that train and Republicans running for president call him a good Samaritan. You know, when candidates like Vivek Ramaswamy or Ron DeSantis keep on talking about wokeness, 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 which is another way of saying anti-anti-racism, so much so that the NAACP issues a travel advisory for Florida, and you don't think that that makes you look bad, but you campaign on it even harder. When we talk about Tim Scott running, saying that there is no racism in the U.S., he literally said that from the U.S. Capitol, a building built by slaves. It gets insane thinking about how the Republican Party keeps trying to find new ways to recycle 
the Southern strategy. How can we come out and talk about people like us and people like them without making it as obvious as Lee Atwater warned us 40 years ago? I am so pleased to welcome Adrienne Shropshire back to the show. She's executive director of Black Pack and the affiliated nonpartisan Black Progressive Action Coalition. She founded Black Pack in 2016 to develop a sustainable infrastructure for Black political engagement. And as executive director, she oversees their political strategy and research. It is such a pleasure to welcome Adrienne Shropshire back to SiriusXM. Hey, John, thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, it's it's a, a very interesting time. It's apparently Donald Trump is uh, maybe going to be indicted even more. Ron DeSantis is not doing as well as everyone assumed he would. And suddenly a lot of Republicans are jumping into this field. Are are you surprised that it's following this same hold? Let's demonize critical race theory without saying what that is. Let's demonize wokeness without saying what the opposite of wokeness is. I mean, at at this point, I guess we shouldn't even be surprised. No, <laughs> we we should not be. Um, this is the this is the playbook, um, and you know they show us over and over and over again. I mean, I think part of the certainly we're seeing lots of people jumping in. Um, you know, we'll see when the when the field is set. Um, you know, I guess tomorrow on Twitter, um, it'll get you know um, locked in for DeSantis. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think he's not just not doing as well as people thought he would. I think he's, you know, doing far worse than he thought he would um, in this in this moment. And it's it's you know, it's quite telling. I mean, it's unfortunate that they don't learn the lessons that they should have learned from the last three election cycles. But honestly, how is he campaigning um, on a slogan of make America Florida. No, no one in America wants America to be Florida. <laughs> like, nope. That's not a, it's not a thing. Um, so, you know, he, he, he's tumbling in the polls. He will only tumble further, even in the Republican, among the Republican um, base, but certainly he's going nowhere with, with, with voters in the rest of the country. Yeah. When I saw all the hats with Make America Florida printed on them, I just thought, my God, Ron DeSantis is in as much of a flattery bubble of sycophants as Donald Trump. Right. And everyone around him was too afraid to come out and say, hey, you know, that that's wrong. But Adrian, is it is it wrong to to draw parallels here to see that they're announcing this on Twitter run by this millionaire at birth from uh, apartheid South Africa? who had said that he would vote for DeSantis because he considers DeSantis a centrist option. This is the same DeSantis who's banned abortions at six weeks and all these books now that are about the black or the gay experience exclusively about the black, Latino or gay experience being pulled from shelves. And and again, this is two guys talking about the woke mind virus, which to me just says anti-racism is evil. I, I, I well, It's hard not to see this as a couple of white supremacist good old boys having some fun on their platform. Well, wokeness isn't just anti-racism; it's it's anti-black, right? Yeah. Like when you when when the word woke is being tossed around among these folks, they really just mean black. And Thank so we, it is, you know, like that that's a reality, and we should we should call it out. Um, you know, I guess if your political playing field, if your landscape, if you're a part of the spectrum, is Proud Boys and Donald Trump on one end. And, you know, who you call rhinos, right, anti-Trump people on the other end, then I guess DeSantis is somewhere in the middle, right? Like you couldn't cause yourself to believe that that is true in some way. Um, But it's all nonsense. 
Um, and so, you know, it is it, it is using every platform to be able to promote the kind of vile ideas, um, racist and misogynistic um, you know, tropes that they find in whatever books they're not allowing people to read. Um, and, and you know, it's par for the course. I think that, you know, obviously DeSantis thought that he was going to use the Trump playbook, playbook to, to Very run. Much so. and win. Very much so. Um, didn't think he was going to actually be running against Trump and is a little, is a little freaked out, I think, um, about how to do this. Um, and so, and we see that, right? There, you know, none of them are actually going to attack um, Donald Trump in the way that, you know, is required for them to actually win the nomination, right? They're not, right. they're just not going to do it. And so in some ways it just feels like, I mean, you talked about um, Vivek uh, Ram, Ramswamy um, and others, uh, Tim Scott um, entering in. Um, it just feels like people are playing for the vice presidency. Um, and particularly when you have people of color um, you know, first of all, they're all, you know, have a, in single digits. So none of none of this is actually real. I mean, I suppose Correct. anything can happen between now and whenever, but we'll see. But they're all seem to be playing for vice presidency. And particularly, it feels like the Republican candidates of color, because we've seen this before. We saw this uh, last cycle with Herschel Walker and not just Herschel Walker, yep. but many black Republicans running across the country and people essentially Alan saying, Keyes like, no, and like, Herman Cain. Right. Yeah. Right. Like we're just we're not buying it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways it is, you know, these folks who are entering in, you know, God bless them, I guess. Right. Um, they're not going anywhere. But in some ways, it really is a, a competition for who gets to sit across the table from Kamala Harris um, on the on the vice presidential debate stage. I, I would agree. And I, we, we've said for a long time, it seems like Tim Scott is auditioning to be either Trump's or DeSantis's vice president. He doesn't much care which. And his ideology isn't too distinct from either one of those gentlemen. But, you you know, you, you mentioned That's Vivek it. Ramaswamy. And it's so discouraging to see this being a, a, a man of color, wealthy man of color, nonetheless, but that he has decided to try to endear himself to GOP primary voters the way they all do by having the racial code talk by all centering it around anti-blackness, but, you know, using the term anti-wokeness. Uh, I thought you were so right in saying that it really is anti-blackness, what they're talking about. And I'm curious what your thoughts were on the NAACP issuing a travel advisory for Florida. I found so many people calling that a stunt who, I guess, have ignored everything Ron DeSantis has been doing for attention over the last year. Well, it's not the first time that they've called for a travel advisory. I mean, it, the NAACP has a responsibility um, to the safety and well-being of black people in this country. Um, they're a hundred, more than a hundred year old civil rights organization whose mission has been to protect um, the civil rights of, of black people um, in this country. And that includes letting, you know, informing people of what, you know, uh, geographic regions of this country mean for their safety. And that's, you know, been, you know, there's a reason why there was a green book, right? No one called yeah. the green book a stunt, right? Um, huh. So, you know, I think that they did the right thing. They're also not the only organization, right, to call for uh, a travel ban um, in Florida. There are, you know, the there, there are Black people obviously living in Florida um, and having to um, really suffer um, under, the, you know, families and children, 
um, to suffer under the policies of this um, of the San the DeSantis administration and the the you know state legislature in Florida. And so they're right to call it out. I mean, it isn't like they haven't been calling out the policies um, that DeSantis has been promoting, the laws that have been that have been passed in the state of Florida. Of course, they've been calling that over and over again and talking about how it is detrimental to the health and welfare and well-being of black people in the state. And it's Great. right for them to say yep. this is a place that is dangerous for black people it is dangerous for black people and you should take that into account if you decide to travel there you know it's amazing how the narratives of our right-wing friends shift with the winds um ordinarily if any time an unarmed black man is shot and killed by a white police officer who's standing their ground they should have listened to the officer they should have done as they're told when it comes to a black capital police officer shooting a terrorist trying to undo our election of course the cop is a thug. You know this. It's the double talking that we've gotten used to. But it is interesting. These are the same people who keep selling us on um, how we need to stop crime. We need to stop crime in the subways. New York City needs to have less crime. And when you've actually got a guy strangling a homeless man to death on the train, they flock to the subway strangler as the one who's standing up against crime, even though the only crime committed on that train that night was by Daniel Penny. Was I, I, I was know murder. I shouldn't be shocked. I shouldn't be shocked at this point, but literally like they were literally taking a law and order stance defending the murderer. Yeah. I mean, there's so there's so much hypocrisy in all of it, not the least of which is they, they talk about um, a man who was the victim, um, who was uh, clearly had mental health uh, challenges, um, and yet won't lift a finger to actually fund and resource at the level that it needs to be resourced um, mental health um, and wellness um, in this country. Right? Yes. Um, won't lift a finger. And we're you know whatever looking at a catastrophic cliff right now with the debt ceiling nonsense um where you know uh they would rather cut services right um yeah. would rather make it harder uh for people to actually get by or to get resources to house themselves um to you know have have um a roof over their head um so there's many levels of hypocrisy not the least of which is this idea that it is okay to murder someone on film and get away with it um yeah. and there is a way i mean whether you know what whether it is um you know uh this terrible instance or it's uh kyle rittenhouse or it's george zimmerman for that matter right the mm -hmm. the point here is that there has to be a way to protect whiteness and to push um, old racist tropes around black criminality right so that even when you are the victim right and we can name any countless numbers of, of black people that we've seen either on video or we know the stories of them um, who have been um, uh, murdered um, at the hands of police and 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 vigilantes for that yeah. matter right in the in the case of George Zimmerman uh, murdering Trayvon Martin um, and the the go to the knee jerk um, for the right and for Republicans is to protect whiteness in that instance. Um, and to That's immediately right. say, well, let's talk about the other person, right? Um, let's talk about the, what their problem, even though we had a man who, who, you know, was screaming on the train about how he was hungry, right? Like yeah. the fact that someone didn't say, how can I help you right now? I got a bottle of water. Can I give you that? That's right? what an actual good Samaritan would have done. Know, I lived in, yeah, I lived in New York for 20 years. I was always on the train, you know, like 
you just give people stuff right yeah. like you you can and you see people. guys like that all the time you see all men like that struggling in public all the time and you either help them or you don't you don't sneak right. up behind them there was no self-defense here whatsoever and crush their windpipe no yes yeah it's just murder and so that that we're even having this conversation, you know, just says so much about where we are in the country and what people are willing to tolerate and what people are. It, it is the it is the the you know, this this outrageousness of both sides in absolutely you can't both sides murder It's murder. You. Do you see parallels or, or a mirroring between um, this case and the case of Kyle Rittenhouse? Well, for sure. I mean, in that, well, you know, there's there's obvious the obvious point here where, um, you know, a, an individual murdered people, and there was from the Republican Party side, you know, sort of a flocking to protect them and say, you know, with self defense, um, when in fact you have one, you know, in the in the one hand, sort of either uh, a black person being murdered and then uh, vilified, right, as being a criminal. Um, and in the other case, um, individuals who were protesting, um, mm -hmm. you know, against racism, right, and in defense of black life. That's right. It. And so that's the you know, we we you know, we're, we're very clear where we are in this country. Right. And this this sort of through line um is not it, one it's not new right um it is it is a part of american history but we would hope right that as we have striven just uh, for you know centuries now right to sort of get to this idea of a more perfect union that we would be in a very different place that we wouldn't be having to have this conversation um, about what it means when um, protesters um, are, you know, when laws get passed in Republican state legislatures and signed by Republican governors that say that if you don't like what someone's protesting, you can run them down with your car and kill them and you will have immunity. And that's where we are. Right. So it's that's not it. it is it is Rittenhouse. Um, it is this subway murder. Um, it is the laws that have been passed. Uh, demonizing uh, protesters and allowing immunity for people who harm them, right? It is, um, you know, it is a very dangerous place that we are in. And it's also the reason why Americans have rejected this version of America for the last three election cycles. That's right. And is the reason why the idea that make America Florida is <laughs> just not going to fly. <laughs> So let me let me round this out by by asking your thoughts on on Senator Tim Scott's uh, campaign. We mentioned early on he's clearly running for vice president or higher public speaking fees. But um, what do you say to his calls for unity and his claims that the U.S. is not racist? I mean, he had said that right after January 6th, where a, a Confederate flag was brought in on behalf of a man who's been a public racist for 50 years and said the first black president wasn't born here. And he said it from a building built by slaves that America is not racist. I, 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 I really, really struggle. I understand his campaign and I know they've got to have someone on the stage to say what me racist. No, but where do you come down on Tim Scott and the kind of campaign he's trying to launch off of his racial identity? Well, I mean, Tim Scott is not uh, running a campaign. He's not building a narrative that's that's designed to bring more people of color or more black people into the Republican Party. Um, you know, he may be, uh, um, you know, a, a um, 
uh, an alternative for Black Republicans who have felt conflicted um, in many ways over the last few years, that they have an alternative, that they can feel like they can continue to vote Republican and not you know, support someone who is Donald Trump. Um, but at the end of the day, he is running a campaign and building a narrative around himself that is ultimately about um, positioning himself within the worldview of the people whose votes he knows he needs to court, right? Correct. And so it is the it, the Republican Party, the base of the Republican Party and the party itself, including its leadership, believe that America is not racist, right? Like they are banning books for a reason is because they know what's in those books. They know that it's accurate. They know it's, it's, it's correct right. history. They do not want anyone to be discussing it because they would like to believe that none of that is true. They would like to believe that racism that there is not systemic and structural racism um, in the country. They would like to believe that uh, every black person ought to be able to pull themselves up from by their bootstraps, regardless That's of right. where they began. They believe all of those things that they know are not true because they're not true for white people, right? And they're not true for any other people. And, and Tim Scott's challenge is that he has to place himself in that narrative. Right. If he wants to win votes, if he wants to build his profile for whatever it is that he's trying to do now or in the future, he has to make himself palatable to that segment of America. Right. And that's going to mean that he has to say things, whether he fully believes them or not, that right. makes him um, palatable to them, but also puts him squarely within the narrative that they want to believe is America. And the only way he can do that is to say the kinds of things that he's saying right now. So, you know, Godspeed to him. Um, but <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't expect him to be rewarded in the primary votes because of these stances he's taking, do you? No, absolutely not. I mean, because he's because what votes is he actually pulling? He's not pulling Correct. Trump votes away from Trump, right? He's not going to pull the the never Trump votes, right? He's 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 working within a very tiny set um, of potential Republican Party voters, and he's it, there, there's not enough room for any of them, frankly, and yeah. certainly not for him. Adrian Schrapschreier is executive director of Black Pack and the affiliated Black Progressive Action Coalition. It is always such a pleasure to have you on the show. You are consistently the smartest person in class. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you, Ms. Schrapschreier, and keep up with your work? People can follow me uh, at Adrian Schrapp um, in all the places and can follow Black Pack at Vote Black Pack in all the places. Thank you for all you do. It's going to be a very interesting election year. I hope to have you back a lot. Certainly is. Good to have see you. Have a great you. one. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. We are back, and thank you guys for waiting on hold. We're going to get to all your calls. Let's start with Carl in Wisconsin. Carl, hi. Did I get you a good time? An incredibly intense. Story. Hello, Usually you just Carl. In the distance way I hear your radio. That particular that was about 2004 on the Sunday okay. night. Carl, actually, I think but, I'm hearing yeah. your radio. Call us back. Let me go. To I think that was. I think that was Carl having a discussion with somebody. He was talking to someone, and he sounded very, very in control, very authoritative. I, I respect his power. Uh, I think but Carl I just, was hosting his own show. I think I interrupted him. Marie in Atlanta, how are you? I promise you I'm not hosting my own show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm barely hosting mine. What's up? 
Well, I called um, today. The the subject of you know this, this, the textbook banning and and now Amanda Gorman's poetry is being yeah. banned because it. I I'm still not sure I understand the reasoning. Because Ron DeSantis has a state where one lunatic parent can ruin it for everyone else. That's what Stop Woke is. One lunatic racist doesn't like a book. It's off the shelves. Boom. Oh my God. Well, you know. My career has not only been as a prosecutor um, and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other things, but it has also been in the area of government contracts. Mm. And any time, so I look at the news very differently from most people. Um, when you hear a politician say the word emergency, hold on to your checkbook. Right. Because the word emergency takes away most, if not all, of the bidding requirements for contracts. That's right. So emergency means fast. We're doing something really fast now and we're getting rid of the usual safeguards. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And so when you consider that they're doing all of these um, bans on materials um, in a very quick fashion, what's going to have to happen is schools are going to have to buy new textbooks that are compliant with compliant Mm -hmm. curricula. That's going to cost, isn't it? There you go. There you go. Um, and the majority of textbooks in this country are um, published by, um, I want to say, I can't remember the name of the company, but they're down in Texas because that, yeah. Texas has the largest school system. And That's so right. the publisher for their books tends to get um, cooperative contracts. They almost call them like piggyback contracts. Oh, I'll take what he's having. That exactly. Kind of Yep. Um, so this is a huge opportunity by banning material, which will then require books to be edited and, you know, to, to create new um, new material to purchase. Yep. And I and, you know, sometimes every now and then the guy who makes the textbooks in Texas is best friends with Jeb Bush, governor of Florida. It's almost always a racket like that. And campaign donations get passed around. Marie, we got to hit a break. But thank you for being brilliant as always. Quick one. We'll be right back with your calls. This is progress. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. We are at 866-997-4748. That is 866-997-GRIT. Thanks for being with us. One year after a suicidal 18-year-old opened fire with an AR-15 rifle inside Robb Elementary School, most of the public discussion remains focused on how a swarm of law enforcement failed for more than an hour to put an end to the attack. By the time the police finally went into the classroom and killed the gunman, 19 children and two teachers were dead, and many other people were injured and traumatized. That catastrophic dereliction of duty demands scrutiny and accountability on multiple levels. So says our next guest in a terrific piece for Mother Jones, which is called The Uvalde Massacre Could Have Been Prevented. We are thrilled anytime we can get Mr. Mark Fullman onto the show. He is one of the most wise and learned people when it comes to the matter of gun violence. He's a longtime uh, journalist and national affairs editor for Mother Jones. And since 2012, he created the first of its kind public database of mass shootings. He has done so many investigations into gun violence. He's received many awards. You've read his stuff in the New York Times and the Atlantic and on NPR. His latest book is called Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. And it's one of the most positive books I've read about how we do have tools at our disposal. It's a great pleasure to welcome Mark Fullman back to SiriusXM. Thanks, John. It's good to be with you again. 
Thank you for staying up late with us. I really appreciate it. Um, your piece is beautiful, and uh, it's hard to believe it's already a year. You talk about the excruciatingly slow response, which violated a, a fundamental doctrine that was adopted widely after the Columbine High School massacre in 99, which says that police on the scene have to move immediately to confront an active shooter. Um, the lack of such action in Uvalde clearly worsened the death toll. Have you gotten any answers to your satisfaction about why this happened? Or is it just going to be a matter of it's not going to be addressed and the chief will be the fall guy? No, I think there's still big questions about what happened. And um, there's still a lot of outrage and disgust about the response. It was a catastrophic failure. Um, and that has remained largely the, the focus and the story about Uvalde. Um, some journalists have done some really good work in Texas to, to try to dig out the truth. Um, CNN has done a great job of it, um, but there's still a lot that we don't know about why this catastrophic meltdown happened in terms of the law enforcement response. And there was a lot of early misinformation from Texas authorities and then a lot of stonewalling, as I write about in, in the piece. Um, and beyond that, you know, I had I had a concern within probably 48 hours of this event, once we saw how catastrophic the response was, that that would just take all the attention with this case. And it deserves intense scrutiny that it's getting and there needs to be accountability yet for what happened. But it's also obscured some other really important things about this case, about this terrible tragedy that, that I wrote about again today in Mother Jones. But that's always how the media seems to do it, Mark, isn't it? I mean, the the shooting, the Dylan Roof shooting became a referendum on the Confederate flag. The slaughter of people at a country music concert in Las Vegas became a referendum on bump stocks. Uh, with with Uvalde, with with, with uh, you know Nashville, it's about uh, are trans people violent? Should they have guns? And of course, with Uvalde, the whole story became about why didn't the cops do anything about the kid with the gun? Not. How did the kid get the gun and why? Right, exactly. And, you know, it's I think in some ways it maybe reflects the complexity of this problem. It is a very complex problem politically, um, socially, environmentally, culturally, however you want to look at it. It's not easily explained um, and it's not easily fixed. And I, I over the years of, of work that I've done on this subject, I've come to, to feel adamantly that we need to do everything we can. We need a broad-based approach to tackling this problem. We need much more emphasis on prevention. And that speaks a lot to the question here that, that has been totally buried, virtually completely buried in this, in this story, which is how did this profoundly troubled 18-year-old person get his hands on an incredible amount of firepower and go and commit this horrific act? Um, there was a long trail of warning signs, as I've written about before and, and again today, um, that in theory had people around him noticed and, and known where to turn for help and spoken up. There were there were probably multiple opportunities to intervene with this very troubled person. And then you get to the point of how does he get the guns, right? Literally mm -hmm. the day he turns 18, he, he walks into a, a, a gun shop and buys two AR-15 semi-automatic rifles, has a boatload of ammunition shipped to his house, buys more, buys tactical gear, this is all happening about a week plus before he goes and commits his attack. Um, you know, with with the trail of behaviors he he was engaged in, um, lots of you know communication online that was very troubling, violent misogyny and extremist ideology, um, talking about violence, talking about guns. 
um, you know, clearly a very troubled kid. He dropped out of school. The, you know, did the school have any idea of what was happening with him? Um, you know, the state of Texas was supposed to uh, had mandated in 2019 that all of its school systems would have behavioral threat assessment, which, as you know, is the right. subject of my book. Yes. It's prevention method that tries to get a handle on people who are turning dangerous and, and intervene, help them and steer them away from violence. So there are big questions about that in this case, too. Why was was he on anyone's radar? Why did no one act? But um, at the end of the day, how a person like this could get such a, a powerful arsenal in so little time and then go and do what he did. I've seen so little coverage of that in, in the year since this terrible tragedy. Absolutely. And, and again, I got to hand it to you, Mr. Fullman, because beyond the book Trigger Points, you consistently are one of the few people in media to talk about the question of how did this mass killer get the gun in the first place? For the life of me, I don't understand why the media doesn't talk about how legal guns become illegal guns. And I don't understand how every single one of these stories doesn't have a, a, a whole side story about how the individual got the gun in their hands. Um, in this case, we know it's easier than ever to get him. He was in the right place. He was in the right state. He was able to just walk into a store, despite the fact that if their state had red flag laws, some action might have been taken. And that's what you point to in your piece from Mother Jones. You, you see the distinct possibility that an array of warning signs from the perpetrator could have led authorities to prevent the massacre. Can I ask you a bit about those warning signs and how something called a red flag law could have possibly saved the lives of those 19 children and teachers? Sure. Well, so from the perspective of, of behavioral threat assessment and this method of prevention, there's a, a, a wide range of behaviors and circumstances that are known to experts that signal danger in, in a situation like this. Um, a person who is uh, communicating things to people around them or online increasingly these days with posts that are dark and disturbing on social media. There was a lot of that in this case. Um, taking interest in certain things, fixating on them, uh, violent misogyny, extreme ideology, uh, fixation on weapons, of course. There's there's a lot of that in these cases. Um, the, the desire to become like a, a militaristic pseudo-commando. This is a concept that's been known to threat assessment experts for a long time. So when these behaviors begin to manifest in a person who is also expressing that they are unhappy, aggrieved, angry, depressed, suicidal, uh, it, it's a, a, a lot of uh, high-level warning going off when, when experts see this. And these are the kinds of things that they would be tracking and evaluating and then making a plan to intervene with, you know, constructive measures, with mental health support, with education opportunities in a school system and so on. Um, and certainly would be looking to see if an individual like this has access to guns. Um, if they're yeah. talking about guns, if they're interested in guns, can they get one? Do they have one? It's obviously an imperative to find that out quickly. And that's what threat assessment teams do. And that's what red flag laws are designed to do to essentially remove them from people who are thought to be turning dangerous. And that's done through a civil court process. Mm -hmm. um, there is early research showing that this is quite effective in preventing suicide and potentially mass shootings. And therein lies a very strong nexus. Many mass shooters are suicidal, as we know, including the one in Uvalde. So yes. had there been this kind of policy in the state of Texas, which no chance because you have Republican majority leadership that's entirely hostile to anything that can be construed as gun control, yeah. um, you might have had a different outcome here. And then also the issue of raising the age of gun buyers, which is an enormously popular idea among voters and has broad bipartisan support. 
um, raising the age from 18 to 21. Well, this is a case where you had a kid who the day he turned 18, I guess a young man, we'd call him at that point, goes out and buys this arsenal. And there, there are other cases like that, too, that I've documented. There, The number of cases like that has actually escalated over the last couple of years. There are multiple cases with 18-year-old shooters, AR-15s, tactical gear, thousands of rounds of ammunition. This is insanity. It's it's madness. And, and you point out in the piece, like he clicks, he checks off all the boxes, this Uvalde shooter, threatening communications, uh, copycat emulation of previous attackers, personal deterioration, triggering events and meth- meth- methodical preparation for his attack. You throw in the violent misogyny, the wanting media attention and notoriety. You document everything, Mark, in this piece. But uh, didn't Texas enact a law? in 2019 to actually have prevention protocols that could have stopped this school slaughter? They did, uh, essentially mandating threat assessment in the public schools in the state. And this is a fast-growing policy. There are upwards of 15, almost 20 states now that are requiring this in their public school systems. And this is a very new and relatively untested policy. It spread quite a lot after Parkland in 2018. Um, It's been around for a decade plus. The first state to do it was Virginia after the Virginia Tech massacre in 2007 in colleges and universities. Now it's becoming much more common with K through 12 public schools. But there's some big questions about how this is supposed to work in terms of the training and the resources and then how the the state will monitor this for accountability to make sure that it's happening. And when you look at a community like Uvalde, or there's another story I wrote about this recently in, about uh, Newport News, Virginia, that had a school yes, shooting. Yes, the six-year-old, right? The six-year-old. Six-year-old, yeah. Very dramatic and disturbing case. Um, another state, as I said, that that it was is requiring threat assessment prevention protocols in its schools, and I could find nothing of the sort in that school system. And and the same is true with Uvalde. But there's some real questions here as to you know how local communities are supposed to do this work and and what resources are available. And so it gets tricky when you start to think about who is to blame for this, uh, because you can't just say to a school system or a, lo- a community, OK, go, course, go figure out course. how to prevent this from happening, especially when someone can walk into a gun store and walk out with an arsenal like that. Of course. And drop that, right. Absolutely. But when you talk about state required threat assessments, and this is what your book Trigger Point is all about, it just seems like, oh, this is the conservative pro-law enforcement, pro-safety approach that American schools deserved. But I mean, to put it politely, it's it's a lack of funding, right? Like we'd love to have it, but no one wants to spend the money to actually try to protect children. Yeah, I think that's part of it. There, there is more funding flowing toward this now, but I think honestly, it's much more held hostage to the the terrible politics we have around this issue in our country. That it, everyone just immediately runs to their corners and has the same political dogfight over gun regulations. And you're right. This, I mean, part of what drew me to the subject of threat assessment enough to write a book about it was seeing the incredible um, interest in it across the spectrum. It is, it is a very bipartisan idea. Liberal, conservative, red murder 19 school children and two teachers. And if this is a prevention method that can help stop that, in addition to the other things we're talking about, um, you know, why wouldn't we be doing more of that? But I think the idea of prevention gets paid lip service in the political debate, and it gets quickly buried. It gets quickly buried when the story goes away and no one's paying any attention or asking the questions. How did a person like this get to the point of attacking in this way and with what weapons? Well, and you point out, how did a person like this, a troubled young person, 
only 18, managed to acquire such a lethal arsenal so quickly and so easily. I mean, he had just turned 18. We know the story of him buying the AR-15s. But what have you learned about the rest of this stockpile this kid had? I mean, he had he had hollow point bullets. He had full metal jacket rounds. I mean, he's using AR-15s, which I've also written about at length um, and has others have covered, too. There was a big Washington Post series on the AR-15. This is a weapon of war. These are designed to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And these are the tools that this 18-year-old had in his hands with, you know, instantaneous effort to get them the day he turned 18. So that I think is is remarkably troubling when we look at the damage those weapons can do and how people, how easily people can get them. And, you know, John, the way that I've always told this story in the broadest sense is to follow the data. What do the data tell us? Yes. And there are, some, there are some new trends that are emerging that are very troubling uh, that I've been writing about recently, there are, there are more and more cases of young people using this kind of weaponry and copycat behavior around tactical gear and uh, you know military style, uh, stylizing themselves, uh, body armor, um, you know bulletproof helmets and vests, and and they they're going out like warriors to kill and commit suicide. Um, there have been eight cases like this in the last year alone, including Uvalde, young people using AR-15s and tactical gear and going out on these nihilistic kill missions. This is new. Um, this, is, this is a new trend. Historically, mass shooters use semi-automatic pistols. That was the weapon of choice. And there, right. have been, there have been AR-15s used over the years, going back to, you know, even back to um, Aurora and Sandy Hook a decade ago, we start to see more of this trend emerging. But it was really last year where it started to take off even more. Five big cases last year, several more this year already. Uvalde, Buffalo, Highland Park, Colorado Springs, Nashville, Louisville, Allen, Texas. Um, The list goes on. It gets long very quickly. So this is something in the data with this problem that we must pay attention to. And I think if policymakers really were paying attention, one would think anyway that they would realize this is madness, that we're living this way. And something else in the data that that I learned from you, uh, Mr. Fullman, and your book Trigger Points was these these mass killers, they're not guys who just one day snap that as much as this might seem impulsive, these crimes are very rarely impulsive crimes. Just for the sake of our listeners, could you please share some of the other uh, just most profound myths about mass shootings, many of which our media keep on repeating to us? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that. It's really important because I think that the nature of this problem is still very widely misunderstood, caught up in the political mythologizing and and political battles. Um, This notion of of these attacks being all done by crazy people who just snap is totally wrong. That is not the reality of these cases. Um, These are planned acts of violence, every single one of them. And, And therein lies the opportunity for prevention work, because there's a pathway to violence. That's what the field of threat assessment calls it, where you see this escalating set of behaviors that are accompanied by warning signs. So if we accept this popular myth that, uh, you know, one day a mass shooter just goes crazy and snaps and goes out and kills a bunch of people, it's distracting from that opportunity. And And it's taking away the possibility that ordinary people who may know nothing about threat assessment, but are close to someone like this, would recognize that something is going wrong and reach out for help, which is fundamentally important also to this prevention work because most cases, most successful threat assessment cases begin with a tip from someone in the public telling 
assessment practitioner. Hey, I'm worried about this person. He's posting these, you know, disturbing pictures on on Instagram and he seems depressed and he said something about suicide. And then he started talking a lot about Columbine. What do I do? Um, if people understood more that these are warning behaviors and spoke out and reached out to threat assessment professionals, we could have better prevention of this problem. Um, so the, the myth of snapping is a big impediment to that, as is the way we talk about mental health, too. Of course, of course. Well, is there a way to measure mass shootings that have been prevented? It's challenging because you're proving a negative, right? Um, yeah. The leaders in the field of threat assessments like to put it essentially as, you know, the, the absence of evidence is evidence of success. In other words, you've helped someone who was on a bad path, who was, who was, you know, setting up for some scary stuff. You've steered them away. Over time, their life is improving. Um, there's nothing happens, essentially. There, there's no violence. Right. That's success. I tell a number of stories like this in the book in, in great detail, um, narratives, especially with young people in school systems who were helped by this work. Um, and those are the success stories. So it's very much an empirically driven measurement of success. But I've talked to many threat ass assessment experts in, in the course of my work and in writing trigger points. And, and they've said to me very persuasively and shown me casework that, that suggests to me that dozens, if not hundreds of mass shootings have been stopped in the United States using this method over the years. And and how much how much is learned? I, I'm just curious. I find this fascinating when the teams uh, look at uh, the social media trail of a person to get a more broad picture of, of what's going on with them. Um, I, I'm very curious how much that's changed the field of behavioral threat assessment, having all their thoughts on a Facebook profile somewhere. Yeah, it's changed it a lot. And it's really interesting. I found this fascinating when I was working on trigger points. It's changed in ways that are both disturbing and, and, and difficult, and then also are helpful to this work. Uh, disturbing and difficult in terms of the copycat problem, primarily that that there's a lot more um, emulation behavior going on around social media um, and people getting the idea that this is something that they could do or that they want to do. A lot of mass shooters, especially young people, are seeking justification for what they have developed as as the solution in their mind to their problems, right? They're looking for validation. Yeah. They can get this much more easily in the digital media age now, and, and that's very worrisome. But the flip side of it, um, experts in the field were studying this, uh, particularly at a, a unit in, in the FBI that I write about in the book, and they started to notice in the 2010s that a lot more perpetrators or would-be shooters were leaking their intentions on social media. And, and now Amazing. we've seen over the Amazing. years, right, there's there's all this trail of evidence online. Um, that's relevant when you're looking into a case of someone who, for a whole range of reasons, appears to be turning dangerous. You know, disturbing postings online alone, in and of itself, means nothing. Um, you can't you can't dragnet this stuff and figure out who the next mass shooter is. But when a person of concern comes on the radar for a threat assessment team, they're going to look immediately at any kind of open source material that's available lawfully to see what a person is thinking, talking about, and saying. And that's become immensely helpful, I think, to the field. Um, you almost can't have threat assessment cases today without that aspect of the work. Yeah. You know, I know you don't focus much in your work on things like background checks or, or that sort of thing, uh, but it's amazing to look at these politicians and how they are consistently devoted to ignoring 
broad bipartisan support among the American public for various measures like raising the age to 21 or, or, or red flag laws. Why do you think it is that these Republican leaders, especially in Texas, uh, continue to ignore the will of the people? Are, are the dollars of the donors that much more valuable than the votes of the voters? I mean, it just seems like they're perpetually hostile to any kind of gun safety policies. Yeah, well, you're handing me an easy one. I know. This is their longtime ticket to power, to getting power and to retaining power. And there are other things that are feeding into that in terms of, I think, what is uh, very challenging about our political system in the current era. Uh, but there's no doubt that, you know, right wing Republicans have found much success in weaponizing the gun issue with extremist ideas and also being beholden to the gun industry. That is still very much the case. I mean, I know there's been a lot written in recent years about how the NRA has been weakened and they've had all these financial problems. That's all true, but they still have significant power. They meaning Correct. the gun lobby, not just the NRA. And, you know, there there are many people in politics and in the gun industry who are very invested in the status quo because it's profitable for them politically and financially. And so unless and until that is no longer the case, they will continue to use the tactics that they do. Um, I mentioned mental health earlier. That is the boogeyman that they trot out immediately after every mass shooting. Oh, mental illness pulled the trigger. This is an incredibly misleading wrong and damaging political narrative that we have to get beyond. I've been writing about this a lot in Mother Jones since the book came out. Um, You know, understanding the role of mental health in mass shootings is complicated. Um, You know, I'm I'm sitting here saying that, you know, these are not people who are insane and just snapping. That is a myth. That's, That's wrong. But also we know these are not mentally healthy people either. So how do we understand and explain this in our in our public discussion of this problem in trying to solve it and trying to get past the logjam politics? Well, you know, we have to talk about the murky middle. Of course, mass shooters have mental health problems, but they know what they're doing. They're planning. They're not insane. Most of them do not have clinically diagnosable mental illness. And this is really important. Mm-hmm. So, you know, politicians don't pay any attention to any of that. They just want to say, oh, it's it's just all about mental illness. Well, what? why are they doing that? Because they don't want to talk about the guns. They don't want exactly. to talk about the fact that 80% of the country wants universal background checks, wants red flag laws, wants to raise, raise the age limit for Thank buying you. AR-15s. So that's why they're doing it. They're, they're not sincerely invested in improving, in, in improving mental health. I mean, case in point, it was Greg Abbott in Texas, Thank you know, you. Talking about mental illness being the problem at the same time that he's defunding mental health resources in the state. Boom, boom. Well, every one of these politicians that tries to pawn this problem off on mental illness is generally a politician who's fighting for the rights of the mentally ill to easily get their hands on guns. They leave that part of it out as well. So in closing, Mr. Fullman, on this very sad anniversary, I mean, it does seem like there's a bit of a grim resignation among the American people. Do you? Do you feel that society is just accepting this helpless culture of violence that we are powerless to do anything about? Or do you really feel like maybe we're on the verge of a of a democratic tipping point where people are just going to take control of the electoral system with both hands until some kind of change happens? I mean, background checks is more popular than Christmas. And yet Barack Obama couldn't get a vote. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. Look, I'm, I'm an optimist in my core. Um, I don't think I could have such sustained focus on this this subject without that. 
Um, it's it's a tough issue, but you're right that the the evolution of the political landscape around guns and gun violence is, has been dramatic in recent years. There are a lot more people who take this as a serious issue that needs change, and I think that is driving political momentum. Um, but I also think, you know, to to your question about the narrative of of despair and outrage and being kind of stuck in that, I've I've been writing about this a lot in the last year too. I think we you really have. have to get past that as well. It's it's is debilitating. And not only that, there is actually case evidence from mass shooters that suggests that that it's fueling the problem. Because as I said earlier, they're looking for cultural and political justification and validation for you know, what they see as an answer to their suicidal despair and pain. And so if we're telling ourselves over and over again in our politics and media that this is an endless problem that we can't solve, we're forever stuck in our political yeah. battle, it will never go away, that's actually making the problem worse in its own right. So I think we really need to stop thinking of it that way, reframe it, talk about the truth, talk about the data, call out the politicians when they're bullshitting us and move forward that way. It's it's all the above. We have to do everything we can to try to take on this problem or, or we'll never solve it. But I think we can solve it. I think we can greatly reduce it. I think you're right. America is consistently very good at eventually, after many years, getting around to doing the right thing and fixing these problems. Uh, Mark, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Mark Fullman is the national affairs editor for Mother Jones. His new piece is called The Uvalde Massacre Could Have Been Prevented. But do yourself a favor and buy his essential book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. I keep waiting for like the the behavioral threat assessment crime procedural series based on your book, Mark, except they're, they're be no crime they'd be preventing them all the time so it might not be the best pitch but the book is brilliant and i'm always grateful to you for joining us um especially on such a sad anniversary as the first anniversary of the uvalde slaughter what's the best way for our listeners to follow you sir and keep up with your work um you can find me on mother jones i publish there regularly i'm on twitter at mark fullman you can go to my website markfullman.com trigger points google it with my name you'll find the book uh, Brilliant. Yeah. It's a great book. It's always a pleasure to have you, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks, John. This is Sirius XM. I'm John Fugel saying peace. Peace.